Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 2? Actually, chapter 3. How about that? We are currently doing a study in the book of Joshua, looking at it, first of all, historically, as a record of Israel's conquest of the promised land. But even more to the point, we're looking at it spiritually as an instruction manual on victorious Christian living, as we've talked about many times. Now, we are currently in a section that runs from verse 10 of chapter 1 through verse 15 of chapter 5, which we've entitled The Preparation for Victory because it deals with Israel uh, entering into the land just before they began to fight against the enemy and what all is involved in that. And uh, this morning, we're in a new section, basically, that covers chapters 3 and 4. And uh, I've entitled it, Crossing into the Resurrection Life. Now, I'll make that clear as we go on why I've chosen that title. But it's built on six principles. Three of them are found in the heart. The last three flow into our lives in the form of actions. First of all, they are cling to God's promises, depend on God's power, be led by God's word, and then sanctify yourself, step out in faith, and reckon the old life dead. And we'll, of course, go through those in detail. You'll be able to understand where we're coming from. This morning, though, let's focus on the first one. When we're talking about crossing into the resurrection life as Christians, and we're talking about the life of the Spirit, the first thing we have to understand is that we must cling to the promises of God. Are we on solid ground uh, when we talk about doing this? I mean, is this something God has promised? Well, let's look at what Israel pro- uh, God promised Israel, first of all. And for this first one, we've got to kind of back up a little bit to the end of chapter 2, because we said from verses 22 to 24 of chapter 2, it really belongs to chapter 3. That's why I'm kind of doing it that way, all right? But here. In verse 22 of chapter 2, it's talking about the spies, the two spies Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. And they talked to Rahab the harlot while they were there. And then they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all the way, all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua the son of Nun. And told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands. For indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. This was based on the conversation that they had with Rahab earlier in chapter 2. When they first came to her house and she invited them in, she knew who they were. They told her they were actually spying out the land uh, because of Joshua, Joshua had sent them and all. And she said in verses 9 through 11, I'll paraphrase, she said, we've heard about you guys. We know all about you. We've heard the stories about how your God parted the Red Sea 40 years earlier and brought his people Israel out. We've heard stories about how he conducted miracles in the, in the wilderness and how he uh, gave you victory over two very powerful kings on the east side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, two of the kings of the Amorites. And i got to tell you, I'm paraphrasing, i got to tell you, she said, we're terrified. Not just Jericho, the whole land of Canaan is absolutely terrified because I know, and she was the only believer in the bunch, I know that 
The God of Israel is the only true living God. Well, when they heard this, that the whole land was terrified and faint-hearted because of the children of Israel, that really bolstered their faith, number one. They came back and they told Joshua all that Rahab had said. And in verse 24, they said, Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of this. Now, the thing I want to bring out is that this is actually a confirmation of a promise that God gave to the children of Israel earlier through Moses. To see that promise, we have to turn back to Deuteronomy 11. And in verse 22, here's what God, speaking through Moses, had promised his people. For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you. And you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Verse 25. No man shall be able to stand against you. For the Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread. Just as he said to you. So that was a promise that God gave to them when they were in the wilderness still. And now... Here's a confirmation of that promise. And the thing I want to draw out from this to apply to our lives is this. When God gives to us a promise in his word as believers, that is something we don't have to really pray about. Oh, is it God's will or not God's will? If God promises it to you, it's his will, all right? You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to pray if it's God's will in your life. It is his will if he's promised it to you. All you need to do is reach out by faith and receive it and move forward to attain it. Make sure, though, it's a promise for you. What do you mean? Well, there are a lot of promises that God gave to Israel specifically that many Christians try to take and apply to their own life. You can't do that unless God reaffirms the promise in the New Testament and applies it to Christians. So there's a lot of promises about physical prosperity and physical healing in the Old Testament that God promised to the nation of Israel. I don't see those same promises to the church. We'll talk about that more in a moment. What I'm saying is make sure that you're not taking a promise that was specific to Israel and does not transcend the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. Some of them do. But make sure you look at the context. And if you find a promise in the Old Testament God gave to Israel, well, if you can find it reaffirmed and restated in the New Testament and applied to the church, it's yours. Take it, run with it. If you can't, well, then you can't claim it as a promise that God has given to you. Look, there are many things that God has promised us as Christians and many other things that he hasn't promised us. And again, God has promised to provide our necessities. He has not promised to provide luxuries. He has not promised that he would give to us all kinds of physical, material blessings. He's promised to give us the necessities. He has not promised us, I don't care what many are teaching today, he has not promised us that he will heal us from all our diseases and sicknesses. In fact, let's think about this for a second. If that was true, and God promised to heal all of our diseases all the time, guess what? We wouldn't die physically. Every time we got sick, God healed us. We'd go on in perpetuity until Jesus came for us. And that doesn't happen, okay? So, look, 
God has promised us many wonderful things. But there's other things he has not promised us. Now, that doesn't mean that he won't provide some luxuries or some material blessings if we ask him. It just means it's not guaranteed. You know, I was telling first service that, you know, early on in ministry, you know, Cindy and I, we didn't have hardly any money. I mean, God provided, but always our necessities. But there were times when we wanted a few luxuries that I know God hadn't provided. I mean, there were times when uh, Christmas time rolled around and we really didn't have the money to buy the kids any gifts. Or in the summer, you know, we'd like to take the family on vacation, but we really didn't have the money to do that. Now, I know that God has not promised us as Christians money to buy gifts, you know, or to go on vacations. But, you know, our God is a gracious God, isn't he? And so there were many times that I just prayed simple prayer, Lord, I know you have, you've been so good to us. You take care of every need we have. And I know, Lord, that you've been promised to give us Christmas gifts for the kids or allow us to go on a vacation as a family. I know you haven't promised that to us, Lord. But, you know, Father, if you could find it in your heart by your grace to, to just provide some of that would be so appreciated. You know what? He always did. And he didn't just do a little. He always did a lot. You know, our God is very gracious, isn't he? I mean, there's a lot of things we don't need, but he does give us because he loves us. He wants us to know how much he cares about us on a daily basis. It's just that the things that God hasn't specifically promised us in his word, well, those are the things we can't claim and act as if they're a sure thing and move forward to receive them. So what do you do if God hasn't promised it? Well, you pray. You ask him. All right? You ask him. He's gracious. But remember what James said in chapter 4, verse 3. He said, you know, you don't receive from God, number one, because you don't ask. But even when you do ask, God doesn't give it to you. Why? Because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may consume it upon your lust. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's a lot of things that we're lusting after, material things. Uh, That's covetousness. God has forbidden us to covet things, any material possession. You know, it's not wrong to own material things. Just don't let material things own you. And if they do own you, God is not going to support idolatry, right, in your life. But if you get your heart right, if you get your walk with God where it should be, if you pray about a vacation or some other blessing that is not guaranteed, but you're asking God, Lord, would you be gracious and allow our family to do this or whatever? I'm convinced so many times God says yes, because he loves to bless us. Just make sure your heart is right. Now, we talk about promises. We know. It's a promise of God. We're not on shaky ground at all here when we talk about the promise God made to Israel about crossing into the promised land and how that corresponds, as we've said many times, how it corresponds to us as believers crossing out of a spiritual wilderness of carnality and complaining and unbelief, which is what the wilderness and their nation's history represented, and how God didn't want them to live there forever. He wanted them to come into Canaan. Canaan represented his best for their lives. We would call it God's perfect will, the life of the Spirit, a life of faith, a life of victory, a life of blessing. Do you think God wants us to hang out in the wilderness as his children, always worried about our daily needs, always complaining that we don't have everything we feel we should have, and walking in unbelief? No, of course not. God wants us to come into the life of the Spirit. In fact, He has promised us in his word that this is his will for all of his kids' lives, that they would enter into this 
life of the Spirit immediately, pretty much, after they get saved. Although many times we don't. We do wander for a while in the wilderness, spiritually speaking. Here's the deal. How long you spend in the wilderness is up to you. Because the more you want to trust God, the more you uh, exercise faith in Him, the quicker you're going to move from a carnal existence into what we call the life of the Spirit, which is God's perfect will for all of us who are believers. It speaks of a life of blessing, a life of victory, a life of fruitfulness. That's what Canaan, the promised land, represented to us as Christians. And I know that this is something that God wants every Christian, every child of his, to enter into. In fact, I believe God wants us to enter into the life of the Spirit as quickly as possible. I don't think he wants us to spend any time hardly in the wilderness. I mean, we will a little bit, but if we really want to grow, we really get into the Word, we really exercise faith in God and want to obey everything he has said, we'll move quickly from the wilderness into a place of maturity, even though we may not be Christians that long. I know Christians who have been Christians for 20 years and are still very carnal. And I know other Christians who have been Christians for 20 months, and man, they blow me away with their maturity because they want to grow. Now, we talk about the life of the Spirit. It's also known in Scripture as the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's where it begins. Turn to Luke 24. Let's look at these a little bit. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we have devoted a whole series to this one topic. If you're interested, you can see the tape folks in the back of the room. They'll direct you to those studies. In Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus is talking to his disciples just prior to his ascending back to his Father. Now, he's already gone to the cross. He's already risen from the dead. He is in that 40-day period before he ascends back to his Father. And he's meeting with them. He's talking with them and teaching them still. And in Luke 24, verse 49, he said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Now, he said in the upper room the night before his crucifixion, I'm going away soon, and where I'm going, you cannot follow me, not, not yet. I'll come back for you at one point. But I'm going away, I'm going back to my Father, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. When I go back to the Father, I'm going to pray, and He's going to send you another Helper, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever. So that was a promise that Jesus gave to them, that He would petition the Father, and the Father would then send the Holy Spirit. So that was a promise the Father had given to the Son as well. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. This is what we're talking about. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Remember now, as we have pointed out many times, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God comes in you. Nobody can be a Christian without the Spirit of God living in them. But that's different from the Holy Spirit coming upon you. That's a different kind of a thing, a different experience. In salvation, every Christian receives the Spirit inside. That's salvation. When we talk about the Spirit coming upon a believer, that's a work of power for service. When he was talking to these disciples of his at this point, they were already saved. John 20 tells us the Spirit was already in them. But now he's talking about a different experience, a further experience, a subsequent experience experience than that of salvation. He's talking about the Spirit being poured out upon them to give them the power to continue the work that Jesus himself had begun. In fact, if you turn to Acts chapter 1, 
And let's look at verse 8 quickly. Again, this is just prior to his ascension back to the Father. He's saying to his disciples, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Again, this is the empowering for service. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. All right? Jesus now ascends back to the Father. They go back to the upper room in Jerusalem and they wait. After uh, ten days, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out and they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Cloven tongues of fire appear above their heads. They begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's a crowd that's in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They hear the sound of this mighty rushing wind like a hurricane, but, you know, nothing is being damaged, nothing is being blown around. They run to where the sound seems to be located, and they find these disciples all speaking in various dialects from all over the known world, although they've never learned these languages. And they were all praising God. And so these people are baffled, these, these pilgrims who are in town for the Feast of Pentecost, and they said, you know, these guys are drunk. Peter says, wait a minute, these guys are not drunk as you suppose. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, says the Lord. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will prophesy. And upon my servants and handmaidens, I will pour of my spirit out on that day. What day? This is going to be the last days now. This is going to be, well, 2,000 years is considered the last days from Christ to the rapture. But the idea is that this was the empowering now to continue the work that Jesus Christ began. And after Peter preaches the first spirit-filled sermon of the church age, it says in Acts 2, verse 37, Now when they heard this, the whole group of guys that were there for this feast, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. See, when Peter says in verse 39, for the promise is to you and your children, that relates back to the gift in verse 38. That's not talking about the Spirit being in them at salvation. It again relates to the gift of of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them. There are many who say that the baptism with the Holy Spirit was only for the first century, and after the apostolic age came to a close, that was it. But what does Peter say here? This promise of the baptism with the Holy Spirit is to you, this generation, your children, the next generation, and to as many as the Lord our God will call. If you're a believer here today in Jesus Christ, you were, first of all, called by God before you were saved. And that means this promise is available to you also. That's why I say this is a promise we can all cling to. This is a promise we can all claim. It is a promise that God wants for all of his kids because he wants all of us living in the life of the Spirit with power to do the work he's called us to do. So the first thing you have to realize is that when it comes to entering into the resurrection life or the life of the Spirit, you have to, first of all, know what God has promised, which hopefully now you do, and you can cling to that. Cling to that. It's yours. You don't have to praise it, God's will in my life. It is. That promise is to you. But remember this, the life of the Spirit 
isn't something we enter into through our hard work, self-effort, or holiness. It is a life that God has to bring us into by His power, working through our faith. But it's God's power. And that's the second point I want to bring up this morning. First of all, we need to cling to God's promise. Secondly, depend on God's power if we're going to enter into the resurrection life. Well, chapter 3 begins, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove, the the whole nation, and came to the Jordan, and he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. Now let me just stop there. Before we go any further, I want to just stop for a minute and try to ponder this moment in Israel's history. I mean, as we come to Joshua chapters 3 and 4, we come to the end of one era in the nation's history and the beginning of another. They were about to enter into a brand new phase in their relationship with the Lord. A glorious new phase. Their wilderness wanderings have finally come to an end and they are about to, uh, to see the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham 500 years earlier in Genesis 17, verse 8, when he said to Abraham, I am going to give this land to your descendants forever. I'm going to drive out the Canaanites, and you are going to possess this land, your descendants. 500 years has passed. And now they have come to a point where God is going to begin to fulfill the promise he gave to Abraham all those years earlier. And I want, to, I want you just to put yourself in their place and feel what they must have been feeling at that moment. I mean, if you've ever known the difficulty, bordering on agony sometimes, of waiting a very long time for a special day to come, maybe it's graduation, okay? Maybe it's uh, your wedding day or the birth of a child. We've all experienced, right, the, the anticipation <laughs> sometimes even bordering on agony, of waiting a long time for a very special day to come. If you've ever experienced that, then you know a little bit what they must have been feeling at this point. Because for 40 years, they had wandered back and forth through the desert, dwelling in tents, with no real comforts, basically living on a bread and water diet. Manna was good, but let's be honest, 40 years of it. I mean, I don't care if you're living on Krispy Kreme donuts. Uh, 40 years, as you know, get a little tired. Not, not that I know that firsthand, but they're... Look, anything, anything you have to eat for 40 years. I mean, there's only so many ways you can prepare manna, right? And basically, manna was bread from heaven. So for 40 years, they're basically living on a water, bread and water diet. You know, as I was reading my commentaries on this for this study, I, I read how one of the astronauts who walked on the moon has said, this area of the world where Israel was in right at this time is about as close to the surface of the, of the moon as you can get anywhere on our planet. Okay, barren and boring. What an existence. Forty years, right, wandering back and forth through the desert. No variety of anything. Scenery, food, nothing. What a dreary existence that really was. And yet that was all about to change. In fact, as we've already pointed out, the wilderness had a twofold purpose. It was the sentence of death upon one generation, and it was a time of learning and preparation for the other. Remember how that 40 years earlier when Moses sent the 12 spies into the promised land to spy it out. And 10 of them brought back an evil report. Only Joshua and Caleb were faithful. But 10 spies said, look, we can't take these people. I mean, they're giants, literally. Many of them were literal giants. Goliath came from this area. 
They live in fortified cities. They drive iron chariots. Man, there's no way we can defeat them. And so the people listened to these ten evil spies, and they said, well, if that's the case, we're going back to Egypt. And God said, because of that, because you wouldn't trust me, I'm going to drive you back into the wilderness one year for every day. The spies spent in the land 40 days in the land spying and out 40 years in the wilderness until this entire older generation dies out and your children are going to inherit the land that you refuse to enter into. So for 40 years, for one generation, it was a death march. And everywhere they marched, they left graves behind them, right? As people died out. But for that younger generation, think about it. It was a time of learning and preparation. See, they were learning lessons in faith every day in the faithfulness and power of God to lead them, to feed them, to take care of them, and so on. These lessons in faith would be invaluable when they finally entered into the land of Canaan and began to fight those giants. There's a principle here. God always teaches us to trust him in the little things before asking us to trust him in the big things. Of course, when you first get saved, God asks you to trust him for little things. And the more you trust him, well, faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, it grows, right? And as it grows, so does your walk with God grow. Your relationship with God deepens. That's the whole purpose, by the way. Now, there are some Christians who never want to exercise any faith, practically speaking. They're always worried about everything. They, they, they don't trust that God can take care of them. They're in the wilderness. And so because they never exercise their faith, they go on 20, 30 or so years as baby carnal Christians. And they wind up dying in the wilderness, spiritually speaking. But for the rest of us who want to exercise faith, who want to trust God, the more we exercise our faith, the next time God asks us to trust him for something a little bigger. And he works his way up because that's how our walk with God grows. Let me just say this to you. Again, before we're ready to trust God to give us victory over the giants in our lives, we first need to trust him to provide our daily bread or our basic necessities. And that's a lesson I think that some of you are learning firsthand today as you've lost jobs. The things you used to take for granted, like just buying food and things or paying your rent, now all of a sudden you're not taking them for granted anymore. You're out of work. This is a time that God is trying to teach you lessons in faith. Now, that's not a small thing. Don't get me wrong. That's a giant. I mean, something like that is a big thing. But God uses these things to teach us lessons in faith. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So for this younger generation, the wilderness was actually preparatory. It was their spiritual boot camp where they were being trained by God to be the army of the living God. As they saw him every single day, his faithfulness to take care of them, to supply their every need for 40 years. And because of it, they finally came to a point when they were finally ready to have him lead them into the promised land and to begin to give them victory over the enemy. And I think the excitement of this moment must have been absolutely incredible if you think about it. We talk about anticipation building for 40 years. Wow. I mean, here they are. They are about ready to enter into the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, I think this was the hope that has sustained them all those years in the wilderness. It was what I believe kept them going. I mean, from the time they were just small children, I would imagine, as their parents tucked them in bed at night in their tents, they would talk to them about how that someday God was going to bring them into this glorious land that he had promised, where there would be a variety of foods where they wouldn't be looking at sand all day long. It would be a beautiful, well-watered land full of many different fruits, all kinds of different foods. Every night they heard those stories. 
And then when they grew up and had kids, then they told their kids the same stories. For 40 years, I mean, think about this. Promises are very important, aren't they? You know why? Because promises give us hope. And hope is what keeps us going. Just make sure that the promise you receive is from somebody who is trustworthy. And when God gives us a promise, we know he's absolutely trustworthy. And so after all these years, finally, the time had come. Their hope was about to become a reality. And again, in verse 1, we read, Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days. Stop there. I mean, after all these years, the fact that they were about ready to enter into the promised land, I think probably seemed more like a dream than a reality to many of them. I mean, here it was. The waiting was just about over with. I mean, they could see the promised land right in front of them in the distance. I mean, you're thinking, well, just let's go. We've been waiting 40. It's time for us to get in there, right? God brings them to the banks of the Jordan River and makes them camp there for three days. Why? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. First of all, from a practical standpoint, I think the Lord was teaching them the importance of waiting on him to give them further instructions before moving ahead. Now wait, I know I said earlier that when God promises us something in the word, we don't have to wait. We can go ahead and claim it and we're going to move out to receive it, right? And that's true. But that doesn't mean that along the way, we're not going to come upon an obstacle or two. I mean, when God gives you a promise, that's the starting point. There is a journey between the promise and the fulfillment, right? And that's the hard part, isn't it? I mean, God gives us the promise. We can see it on up ahead of us. I mean, it's coming in the future because God's promised it to us. But between, between promise and fulfillment, there is a journey. And along the way, the devil tries to mess us up, tries to keep us from going forward. And a lot of other things may happen. Obstacles that suddenly appear in our way as some kind of a roadblock that forces us to stop, to pray, and to wait upon God for further direction before we move forward. And I think waiting on God is one of the hardest lessons that we as Christians have to learn. But listen to me. It's when we don't wait on God to direct our lives, but instead become impatient and take things into our own hands that, you know what happens usually? Disaster. I always think of Abraham, right? God promised Abraham when he was 75 years old, and Sarah was 65 years old, that they were going to have a son. Great. I mean, we're past the age of childbearing, but okay. 25 years passes. Excuse me, I'm sorry. 12 years passes. No son. Now, Abraham's not getting any younger, and neither is Sarah. So here's what Abraham thought. Well, maybe... God meant that I was supposed to help him a little bit. And so I'll go into my wife's handmaiden, Hagar, and I'll raise up a son through her. That was socially acceptable, by the way. Your wife was barren in that culture. You could take her handmaiden and raise up seed through her, and that child would be considered yours. Yours, your wife's, and yours. It wasn't immoral socially at that time. It's just that God didn't say that was the way it was going to happen. And what was created was Ishmael. And Ishmael's been a problem for the Jewish people to this day. See, we don't want to make our Ishmaels. Unfortunately, we do create a lot of Ishmaels, don't we? Because instead of waiting on God and praying, we rush out and try to work things out. Now, let me just give you a little background here so you understand what's going on here. Verse 15 tells us that this was the time of the year when the Jordan overflows its banks, right? 
You see, in the spring of the year, when the snow's on top of Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon's about 9,000 feet above sea level. When the snows on top of Mount Hermon begin to melt, they run down into the Jordan River. The Jordan River actually begins at the base of Mount Hermon. And from the Jordan, they run into the Sea of Galilee and eventually then into the Dead Sea. And over the course of its journey from Mount Hermon to the Dead Sea, the Jordan River drops about 1,500 feet. In fact, the very name Jordan means descender or literally the one going down. And so this time of the year, as we come to Joshua 3, this time of the year and in the location that Israel was encamped, the Jordan was a swollen, raging, white water rapid, anywhere from several hundred yards wide to a mile. Think about that. Have you ever seen white water rapids? I mean, you see it on TV or maybe you've actually been somewhere. Okay, can you imagine a river that was several hundred yards wide or even a mile wide Moving that quickly? I mean, think about that. How are they going to get across that? If Joshua or the people have grown impatient and they tried to, you know, figure a way to cross that on their own with all their little ones and livestock, oh my goodness, what a disaster that would have been, right? Many hundreds of thousands would no doubt have been carried away by the current and drowned. And yet when they waited on God for direction, he instructed them on what to do and then miraculously opened a way where there was no way, and they all crossed over, and not a single person or animal was lost. Now, that was God's plan. We'll see how that unfolds as we go through the story. But look, logic would have said, you know, looking at this from a human logic standpoint, you know, if we were, often when we're faced with these, and churches are good for this, okay? Churches are faced with obstacles, in the way of God's work, right? And so often, the first thing churches do is call a board meeting. Let's all brainstorm, okay? Let's come up with some plans. I mean, human logic would have said, look, let's just wait till the end of summer, right? When the Jordan's only 20 or 30 yards wide, four to six feet deep, we'll cross then. God says, no, uh-uh. No, he purposely, purposely led them to the Jordan during the time of the year when it was humanly impossible to cross and therefore the most illogical and foolish from a human standpoint and then on top of it he makes him camp there on the banks of the Jordan and stare at that thing for three days and I'm thinking to myself what are the people thinking to themselves during this three day period right because I mean I can't help but think what they were thinking the people must have been thinking how is Joshua going to lead us into the promised land with this raging, swollen barrier of a river standing our way. Joshua, I'm sure he was thinking, Lord, I hope you got a plan because i got nothing here. I have no clue how we're getting across that thing. And I think God made them look at that river for three days because he wanted them to exhaust every possible option in their minds. Well, we can build some bridges. We can build boats. Yeah. I think that God wanted them to sit there Look at that thing for three days until they exhausted all. You know how we do that when we are confronted with a problem? Let's be honest, right? we got a pretty good-sized problem that we're dealing with. I don't know about you, but I've often laid in my bed looking up at the ceiling, trying to figure out ways around it, right? Well, I could do this. We could do that. You know, and I'm trying to brainstorm. And I'm not saying that that's always wrong. I mean, we do have a mind, and God wants us to use our heads. But if it's a problem that you finally come to a place where you go, there's no way, there's no way, there's no solution. 
now you're in a place where God put these folks. And I think that God wanted them just to exhaust every possible option in their mind so that they realized from a human standpoint, man, there was no way. There was no way that we're going to get across that river on their own. They were absolutely helpless and therefore totally dependent on God's power. And I think that there are times in our lives when God, when God will lead us into situations as we walk with him and serve him that from a human standpoint are insurmountable, impassable, and impossible for us to overcome. And he does that to bring us to the end of ourselves, to break us of all self-reliance, self-dependence, to bring us to the same place he brought Paul the Apostle when Paul finally was broken and said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, you know, these are principles that we have studied numerous times. Even in this series, we've studied these things numerous times. And here's the deal. As you read God's word, you see that God keeps repeating certain principles that are so basic and so foundational to our Christianity that he keeps repeating them because, you know what, we tend to forget quite easily. And so if you've heard these things before, bear with me. I'm only trying to do what God does. You know, there was a, years ago there was an ad campaign for Kellogg's Corn Flakes. Maybe you caught that with the tagline, taste them again for the first time. You know, taste these principles again for the first time. Don't brush them off. Yeah, I heard that. Because you know what? In this setting, yeah, we've heard it. We nod. Yes, good. Got that. We get out to our Jordan. Forget everything. Now we're trying to figure out ways around that deal. We're trying to, how are we going to, how am I going to get across? You know, we got all these plans that we've developed. We haven't really learned the lesson, have we? But this is something that God has taught all the way through Scripture. I just came up with a few in thinking about this. I'm sure there are many more. Again, we talk about Abraham and Sarah, how God promised them a child. When he was 75, she was 65. They were past the age of childbearing. They were dead biologically to have children. Then God waits 25 years before Isaac was born. Now they're good and dead, right? Kind of like Lazarus, who was dead and stayed in the tomb for four days. Like he's not good and dead, right? That's even possible. But, you know, if God would have given them a child when he was 75, she was 65, people might have thought, well, hey, that's, a, that's an abnormality. That's weird, man. But, oh, okay. 190, you get, forget it. That's God, right? That's what God does. Or you think of Moses and Israel standing by the Red Sea 40 years earlier. Same deal, right? Red Sea in front of them, Egyptian army coming behind them. There was no way out. They were trapped. God opens the Red Sea. They cross through on dry ground. Or if you talk about David and Goliath, teenager taking on a nine-and-a-half-foot Philistine warrior. Come on. There's no way this kid's having victory over that giant. It was the Lord, right? Or Daniel in the lion's den. Those lions would have tore him to part if God had, a part if God hadn't shut their mouths. Or I think of King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20, who was king over the little tiny nation of Judah. And three very powerful enemy nations come out against him. And they were, they were totally outnumbered and outgunned. So Josh, uh, Jehoshaphat calls for a day of fasting and prayer in Jerusalem, gets everybody together, and then at one point he lifts up his eyes towards heaven, and he says, Lord God, we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. That is a great place to be in, by the way. Because when you're weak, then you're strong. That's what Paul meant. When I've exhausted my human strength, now I'm looking to his strength, and then I'm really strong. Or when Paul himself and his team 
faced a situation where, I don't know, something was had come upon them that was a life and death situation. And Paul said, man, we were done. We were goners. He said, but yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. See, this was one of those situations where Paul is saying if God didn't act with resurrection power, we would have been gone, done, dead. There are situations where God will lead us into at times that go so far beyond our abilities that we are forced to trust God. You say forced? That sounds like I don't really want to. Do you want to? I'll be honest. There are times when I don't want to. I'd rather work this thing out in my flesh. Hey, a walk of faith is not easy, right? God says, step over the cliff. I'll catch you. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, can I have, like, maybe a bungee cord? I mean, you know, something. No, just step off the cliff. I'll, I'll hold you up. It's easy to talk about faith, right? A lot harder to live it out. Folks, as someone has said, man's impossibilities are God's opportunities. If we will wait on him for direction and depend on him for his power. Let me say that again. Man's impossibilities are God's opportunities. You have to look at every crisis, every trial, every adversity in that way. It is not God punishing me necessarily. I mean, if you're living in sin and there's all these negative consequences coming into your life, you better deal with that. But there's times when we're doing everything God wants us to do. No, we're not perfect, but we're not living in some overt sin or whatever. And now we find ourselves facing some kind of a horrible trial that has us completely overwhelmed. It's not that God has abandoned us. It's not that God doesn't love us. He's trying to teach us. Why? Because as our faith grows, our relationship with him deepens, and that's what he's really after. It's all about us getting to know him more and more. That's what he wants. And the only thing that will do that is trials and adversity, because only they will build our faith. And it's what faith, faith is what connects us to God. So man's impossibilities are God's opportunities to show us just how powerful he really is. You know, F.B. Meyer, great Bible teacher, said this, and I quote, he said, God permits the Jordans in our lives that he might educate our faith. God permits the Jordans in our life that he might educate our faith. Look, we're done, but let me just end by saying this. These Jordans in our lives take on many different forms. But listen to me. Whatever form they take, they are all obstacles that stand in our way to hinder us from entering into the fullness of all that God wants for our lives as his children. Jordans in our lives take on many different forms, but all of them stand in the way to block us going forward with God into the fullness of all he wants for us as his children. For some people, these Jordan rivers in their lives, these obstacles, you know, relate to things that have a hold on them still, like alcohol or cigarettes or drugs or pornography or, or gambling or other vices that have them bound still. For other people, these Jordans can be, you know, a lust for material things, selfishness, pride, anger, gossip, an unloving spirit or a critical heart. Those will hinder us from moving forward in our walk with God. For others, they take the form of depression, feelings of worthlessness, guilt, condemnation, and doubting God's love. And we can go on, but you get the idea. Anything that stands in the way of you reaching out and receiving by faith the promises that God has given to you 
that will allow you to enter into all of his fullness, the life of the Spirit, know this, that is your Jordan. That is what is keeping you down. What does the Jordan mean? Going down? That is what's keeping you down. That's what's holding you back. And God doesn't want you to figure out a way around it. He wants you to go through it. He's not going to airlift you over it. You're going to have to persevere through it. And we're going to show you how God led them to persevere through this Jordan River, literally, to enter into the promised land and the principles that God has placed here for our learning, I believe, as Christians, that will help us through God's power to go through our Jordan, whatever the obstacle it might be, that we will enter into all the fullness of all that God wants for us as his children. So a lot of Christians who are camped on the wrong side of the Jordan, you say to them, why aren't you going forward? Why aren't you doing more for the Lord? Why aren't you serving the Lord? Because of this. I can't get past this. Uh, I was abused as a child. Or I don't have faith that God's going to deliver me from this thing or that thing. Or I have these issues or those issues. I'm in bondage to pornography or alcohol or something else. Those are never an obstacle for God. They might be to us in our strength. But God wants you to look at that. God wants you to come to the end of yourself until you're broken and you're weeping, if need be, until you fall on your face and say, Lord, I can't. I can't get through that. I can't overcome this. And God is saying, that's what I wanted you to say. That's what I was waiting to hear. Now, will you trust me? Because I can get you through that. I can overcome that obstacle if you trust me. And you depend on my power and strength and not on your own. And we'll look at these other principles next time. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are an awesome God. And that, Lord, you have shown us over and over again in the pages of Scripture and in our own lives how faithful you are. Lord, to you nothing is hard, nothing is impossible. And, Father, we all want to enter into the fullness of your Spirit. We all want to enter into the life of power and blessing and fruitfulness and victory. But, Lord, many of us don't know how. Many of us feel overwhelmed by our own personal issues that seem to keep us back and hold us down. Father, we need your grace and strength. Teach us from this incredible passage the principles that we might, Lord, see. You open up our own personal Jordans and lead us into the life of the Spirit in a very powerful way. Father, we thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.